Merry Christmas to you all. Uh, just a reminder that Christmas is not a single day celebration in the Christian calendar. It is a 12-day celebration, and so we are going to continue to sing. Uh, in Advent, we often spend these, those weeks kind of thinking about the difficulties and challenges that we're facing in the world, and we're reminded at Christmas every single year that it is Jesus who comes into the darkness of our world to save give hope, peace, joy, and love. So we certainly have something to sing about in these days. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, I wanted to just put a few announcements uh, on your radar uh, as we get going here in worship. And I think I sort of have them memorized. If you are new or you want to respond or connect in any ways in the life of our church, we'd love to have you fill out a connect card. For those online, there's a link there on our website that you can click to. Uh, it's a great way for our church to move beyond just coming on Sunday morning and participating to actually engaging with one another's lives. Uh, the first thing that we have going on coming up in the new year, which is wild to think that it's going to be 2022, is that we're going to be starting home groups. And these are just going to be small groups that meet in people's homes. And the way that they're going to be set up in the first sort of trial run, if you will, it's an experiment because our church hasn't done this typically in the past, is we're going to be reflecting uh, together about the sermon and things that are sort of unpacked there. We'll probably give you some scripture and some, some questions to give you a little bit of uh, food to, to think on as you lead into those groups. And we'll meet in people's homes. It'll be rather informal. We'll discuss and reflect on some of the things that God is teaching us, and we'll pray together, and then we'll kind of disperse until the next week or until the next Sunday. And really, the hope is that we are becoming more than just a crowd that gathers on a Sunday morning, but we're becoming a community of people who know each other's lives and stories, and we recognize that God is active in each of our lives, and we're sharing that with one another. So get connected with one of those. We'll have some, we'll have a group in Camarillo, we'll have a couple here in Ventura. Some will have kids, some will not have kids. Um, this Sunday will be the final item of the month of our canned food drive, our sister church in Oxnard. Uh, starting a their own food pantry, sort of separate of what they do with food share, because there's such a high demand for food and just resources in that community where they're located. And so if you have canned foods, feel free to drop them off in the foyer this morning. And if at any time you're just like, hey, I wonder if the church can use the canned foods, they certainly can, and we'll get them to you. So feel free to bring those to church on any Sunday, and we'll get them to our sister church. And the last thing is this. This is a new thing that we're going to be trying out on uh in the month of January and sort of going on, well, you're going to have a few different homes in which are going to be hosting meals that we're just calling dinner groups. Um, one of the things that I miss terribly that has been a, a critical part of the life of our church is gathering around the table together on Wednesday nights. And we've been thinking about how do we recreate that point of connection where it's not a Bible study, there's not some intense discussion, just the opportunity to do life with one another, which is one of the church's favorite phrases, doing life together. Um, but we're going to be having this group. Uh, we'll be hosting a group. I believe the Holes are going to be hosting a group if they don't know. Surprise! And the Doherty's are going to be hosting a group. And these are going to be dinner groups that meet monthly in people's homes. And you're welcome to go to all three or one or none of the above to bring friends or not. The host is going to be providing an entree. And people who sign up for that dinner group can bring sides and sort of coordinate that with the host uh, and it'll be a sweet time of just eating food together and hopefully getting rid of all of our treats that we've collected and amassed over the Christmas holidays because my body can't take much more of it. But as we continue in worship this morning, I invite you to stand and we'll read our call to worship together to focus our attention 
on this God who has come to us. Again, this Christmas season, we read the words with me on the screen. We have gathered in the name of Jesus Christ. We have come to this moment to worship God. We have come to confess that Jesus is Lord. We are here with the openness and willingness to be transformed by grace. We are not here out of obligation, but are here to encounter the sacred, to praise and adore the living God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's continue in worship this morning. me 
church good morning good morning good morning oh anybody else just need a little breather from all of the holiday madness of visiting and seeing yesterday actually was uh the most mellow uh christmas morning and day that Paige and i have had in a number of years it's the first time we had christmas all day at our own home uh, because a service was today, we just kind of told our families, we're not going to kind of run down to see you guys and come back for service. We'll come down Sunday afternoon or evening and do that whole thing there. And so we just got to hang out uh, with some of our neighbors. I wish I would have put a picture up here for you, although I don't know if my neighbors would have been okay with it. We have these good friends across the street from us, and we all had the same Christmas pajamas la- uh, yesterday. And so we kind of all got dressed up and hung out and, and uh, it shared our, our new toys, or the boys did, with each other. Uh, Paige and I don't get toys. We're too old for that. But we had a great time, and I hope that your Christmas uh, was as uh, pleasurable and relaxing as ours. 
Well, if you have a Bible this morning, you are welcome to turn with me to Luke chapter 2. We're not going to actually have it on the screen this morning, so if you really like to be able to see the text, uh, you're welcome to turn there uh, with us. Uh, But this morning, um, we're going to be unpacking the the only event that we have recorded in the Gospels of Jesus' childhood. I titled my sermon, Preteen Jesus, uh, sort of as a, a joke. I know Eric probably knows exactly what it's like to work with 12-year-olds, and we get a little bit of insight into that in our text this morning. But uh, yeah, in the 1990 classic Home Alone, which I imagine many of you have seen before, the McAllister family is preparing for their Christmas vacation in Paris. And so the extended family is all gathered at a single home, and they've packed, and they're ready to go, and they're ready to to go off on their dream vacation in less than 12 hours. And as the family slept that evening, if you know the movie, there's the storm that breaks out, and the power goes out in their home, and the result is that all of the alarm clocks in the home are reset. Do you remember when we actually had alarm clocks that weren't our smartphones next to our bedsides? Right? So that wouldn't be a big deal in the world today. But back, you know, 31 years ago in 1990, this became a really big deal because they needed their alarm clocks to wake up on time to get to the airport uh, there's no internet, no cell phones, no home computers, right? And so they have to, so they wake up late that following morning. And as they wake, they hurriedly get their bags together and load up in the airport shuttles. Their bodies are clipped into the seat belts that they have, and they rush to the airport through the check in process and boarded the airplane with moments to spare. And as they're mid flight taking off, And traveling to Paris, the matriarch of the family, Kate McAllister, awakens with this anxious feeling that something has gone wrong because they had forgotten one important thing on their trip, her youngest son, Kevin, right? And she wakes up with that that startling shout like, Kevin! And any parent who has lost a child knows the sickening, powerless feeling that Mrs. McAllister has in that moment guilt for your failed responsibility, panic for your vulnerable child, worry that something terrible has already happened to them. Worst case scenario after worst case scenario begins to race through your mind. Losing your child is a nightmare no parent wants to live through, let alone when you're on an international flight to Paris and they're back in the United States. But... Unlike his mother, Kevin McAllister, portrayed by Macaulay Culkin, senses little to no panic as he wakes up in a home where there's nobody uh, uh, around. Rather, he rejoices in his good fortune and begins to take full advantage of his Christmas wish to be alone on Christmas. And in this morning's text that we'll find in Luke chapter 2, we find what could have been, but likely was not, right? The inspiration for the creation of home alone. We find the only recorded event in the Gospels of Jesus' childhood, and it is every parent's worst nightmare. Mary, our Lord's mother who was so venerated in the previous portions of Luke's Gospel, has lost the Christ child She's distressed, panicking, and just overall freaking out that she's lost Jesus. Imagine that sort of guilt that you would feel. And unlike his mother, though, we find preteen Jesus calmly going on with life, taking advantage of being, quote, home alone. 
So we listen to the story from Luke chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 40 through 52 this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. There the child grew up healthy and strong. He was filled with wisdom and God's favor was on him. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When Jesus was 12 years old, they attended the festival as usual. After the celebration was over, they started home to Nazareth, but Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't miss him at first because they assumed he was among the other travelers. But when he didn't show up that evening, they started looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they couldn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to search for him there. Three days later... Three days later, that's an interesting number in the gospel, right? Three days, it's kind of an important number. Three days later, they finally discovered him in the temple, sitting among the religious teachers, listening to them and asking questions. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. His parents didn't know what to think. Son, his mother said to him, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been frantic, searching for you everywhere. But why did you need to search, he asked. Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? But they didn't understand what he meant. Then he returned to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. And his mother stored all those things in her heart. Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and all the people. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we've come on this first Sunday after Christmas, the first Sunday of Christmas, and we want to hear a word from you. We want to hear a word for us in this particular moment in time. We want to be welcomed into the spirit and celebration and the reality that you are with us and become the kinds of people who live that way that you are Emmanuel with us. And so as we tend to your word this morning, would you grant us the grace and the mercy that we need to have ears to hear your voice anew this day. And it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Well, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus had traveled to Jerusalem for the annual celebration of Passover Uh, Back in the first century, Jews would make the trek to Jerusalem at least three times a year to celebrate their holidays. Imagine if we all, as Christian people, had to go to one particular city to celebrate Christmas together. That would be a wild event, right? It would be very chaotic, lots of things going on and people to to see. But in this sort of trek to Jerusalem, it was only the men who were actually required to travel to Jerusalem in the first century to celebrate And the inclusion of Mary and Jesus in our story this morning highlights the depth of commitment that this particular family, the Holy Family, has maintained in their household. And the trip to Jerusalem from Nazareth would have taken the family about three days' journey. And during this time period, traveling wasn't nearly as safe as it is today. And so the way that you would often travel from one town to the other, especially over long distances, was to caravan with a large group. There's safety in numbers after all. And we can't be sure 
about why Jesus got lost in this particular trip, but many suggest that men and women would often travel in different caravans because of the times that they were in. And so there could have been because Jesus wasn't quite a man. He was just 12 years old, we speculate, that Mary thought that he was with his father, Joseph, and Joseph thought that he was with his mother, Mary, and this sort of lack of communication that married couples experience from time to time, not in my marriage, but sometimes in marriages, I heard there's miscommunications, causes them to lose the Son of God. Uh, More significant, though, isn't how Mary and Jesus and Joseph became separated, but the responses that the two of them had when they discovered that there is a separation at all. Mary is distressed. She's anxious and upset. You can only imagine the emotional toil and guilt that one would have without the availability of smartphones. You know, like, find, find my iPhone. Where is Jesus right now, right? And when she finally recovers the Christ child, she lashes out with all of that pent-up emotion and distress. She does not consider this question, like, how could we have lost you? How could we have done this to you, Jesus? No. How could you, Jesus, have done this to us? Look at the the mess that you have caused us. We've been frantically searching for you, and your lostness is the cause of our distress. But when compared to Jesus' response, you see just how stressed out this mother is. Simply Jesus responds, he says, no, I've been in my father's house. Didn't you know that this is where I would have been? It's good for me to be here. It was necessary for me to be here. And this scene quickly transforms from one of resolved tension to a scene of kids say the darndest things, right? Mary's emotional state must have quickly turned to puzzled confusion And she questioned, what do you mean you've been in your father's house? I imagine most kids say things at young ages, I know my kids do, that stick with their parents for years to come. Some of them funny and some of them strangely insightful. And this is a strangely insightful moment for Mary and Joseph. What does he mean by his father's house? But the scene of confused lost travelers not only introduces what Luke has to say about Jesus's ministry. If you were to fast forward to the end of Luke's gospel, Jesus's ministry, you would notice, is bookended by, uh, on roads, uh, uh, by lost travelers on roads concerning themselves with the identity and absence of Jesus. If you were to turn your Bibles to the end of Luke's gospel, you would find two disciples traveling on the road to Emmaus. They too are missing Jesus, only it isn't because they lost him. They aren't traveling the dirt road concerned with finding him, rather they are anguishing, grieving over the three days that have passed since Jesus' death. And during their journey, Jesus, unbeknownst to the travelers, shows up and meets them on that road, explaining to them why it was necessary for him to suffer the death that he did. In our account this morning, we have another couple traveling back to Jerusalem who have spent three days thinking that they have lost Jesus only to discover 
Jesus who explains to them why it was necessary for him to be in his father's house. Why does Luke begin and conclude his gospel story of the ministry of Jesus in this way? People who are lost and confused about where Jesus is and what is going on. It may be that Luke, in his writing the gospel, is writing to people who have some familiarity with Jesus, but find that he's much more elusive than they initially considered. You see, finding Jesus almost always involves a surprise. Jesus doesn't do or say what Mary and Joseph or the disciples on the road to Emmaus expect or anticipate Jesus to do and the words that he would say. And this is as true for them as it is for us today. Whenever we think that we've exhausted our understanding of Jesus, he goes up ahead and does something unexpected and surprising. Right when we think that we've got Jesus all figured out, right when we realize we think that we have and possess Jesus, we recognize that we lost him. It's interesting. I don't know how much you were a part of the conversation going on in sort of Young people and in popular culture today, there's this fancy word called deconstruction that's being thrown about. And, and really, it's about this process of trying to reflect and reorder your beliefs in Jesus as you discover him more profoundly. There's a whole generation, myself included, that thought that we understood Jesus properly only to grow up and recognize we've lost them. Where is he? What is he doing? What, what is he like? Why is he so much different than my perceptions of him? This is the Christian story. We are, in many ways, the travelers thinking that we had Jesus, only to recognize and identify that he's not here. And we're on pursuit to go and discover him. This morning, I want us to see two things, simply, that surprised Mary about the identity of her son, as she lived this moment, and that surprises us as we read about this moment today. And perhaps by focusing on these surprising though familiar aspects of the person of Jesus, we might find ourselves neither ahead nor behind him, but simply walking with him. The first aspect of Jesus' identity that may seem surprising to us has to do with his being a child. And it's this simple statement, Jesus grew. In my initial reading of this passage, I, I circled the first and last verses. Each record the fact that Jesus grew physically, intellectually, and spiritually. How is it that Jesus, being fully God, grew in knowledge and in grace? In a way, this text allows us to understand what the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians when he notes that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself. One of the things that Jesus emptied himself of was his divine omniscience. It's a really fancy word of saying, like, he knew everything, right? In our passage this morning, Jesus isn't playing or toying with the religious teachers. His questioning and conversing with them is increasing his wisdom and knowledge. And Jesus' growth as a child has two implications for us as Christians today. The first is this, is it highlights the need that we all have to grow in wisdom and knowledge of God. 
if Jesus needed to grow in wisdom and knowledge of God, it might be good for us to assume that we do too. From this passage, we can see that Jesus sought out teachers of the faith, listened to them, asked them questions, and, and that, that they gave him answers. And it's hard, honestly, to overstate the importance of learning and growing in the Christian life, especially in the world that we live in today where reading and educating yourself for whatever reason is not something that we do commonly as a society. But Paul's plea for Christ followers to be transformed by the renewing of their minds is the means by which they are to discern the will of God. But the truth of the matter is, (laughs) we cannot go at this alone. We like Jesus, need teachers. When I graduated from seminary several years ago and moved to Santa Barbara, people gave me all sorts of gifts and cards, and, and uh, there was actually one, one lady, uh, a mom in the youth group, who gave me the deposit for the, my apartment that I was moving into in Santa Barbara. It was probably one of the, the kindest acts that, that somebody's ever extended to me in my life. But there was one gift that stands head and shoulders in terms of importance to me that was given to me by my mentor at the time. He gave me his old used Bible. And the first thought that I had was like, I just graduated seminary. I don't need another Bible. I have lots of Bibles. I have every translation of Bible that you could possibly have. And I read them every single week. And yours is an old NIV translation that I I don't really like that much. But after using it, I kind of opened it up, and I was like, I'm going to do my devotionals out of this. It was a gift. It will remind me of my mentor, and I'll pray for him and be encouraged by it, perhaps. After using it, though, I found that it was littered with handwritten notes and comments in the margins, referencing connecting, references to connecting different passages together and insights about what this text actually means that's helped me to unlock the meaning of verses. And when I study from that Bible, it's, it's as though I'm, I'm reading it with my mentor, as if he's teaching me there about the scriptures. You see, church, we need people in our lives, teachers, friends, mentors, that can help increase our wisdom and knowledge and understanding of God. We, like Jesus, need to increase these things in our life. We don't want to be the kinds of people who are just on cruise control I kind of got where I'm at, and that's enough for me. And though we should increase in knowledge and wisdom of God, we must be reminded, though, that wisdom and knowledge is not a prerequisite or requirement for sincere faith. We should recognize that Jesus' limited wisdom and knowledge in our text this morning does not mean that he's incapable of a sincere commitment to faith. Jesus was 12, and we find him thirsting for wisdom and knowledge of God in the temple. I'm reminded of this with my own kids as I watch them here just sort of fiddling around and laying on the floor and (laughs) running around. My son, I think, has sincere faith in Jesus. There is no intellectual prerequisite for faith. But sincere faith ought to move us to increasing our knowledge and wisdom of God. But there's a second aspect of Jesus' identity that should surprise us in this passage this morning. And that's this, that it's his identity as a family member. The main point of this passage may lie in the contrast between your father 
and my father. Upon discovering her, quote, lost son, Mary exclaims, your father and I have been searching for you everywhere. And Jesus responds in the following verse by asking, didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? Jesus' response to his mother raises a number of interesting questions to me. Did Mary and or Joseph reveal to him the nature of her pregnancy and the peculiar circumstance that led to his birth? Can you imagine trying to explain that to Jesus, right? Like, let me explain to you who your dad is and who's not your dad. There's rumors going on around town about who the actual father of this baby is. Like, imagine in a small town all that would swirl around the gossip mill of Jesus and his family. And if if you're going to explain that to Jesus, how do you do it and when? And if you're not going to do it, like, how does he know who his father is? We can't quickly gain answers to such questions, and they must remain unanswered, at least for now. But there is no doubt that Jesus' response to his mother is significant. Luke highlights this fact by making them the first words that Jesus actually speaks in Luke's gospel. The first words that Jesus speaks are the one that we read in our text this morning in Luke's Gospels. And these words act as a sort of pronouncement that Jesus understands his unique relationship with God. By delineating who his true father is, Jesus has made known his primary loyalties and commitments to his heavenly father over and against his earthly father. As one pastor wrote, it seems to me that the main teaching of the passage is that Jesus now recognizes his unique sonship to God and that his mission will require of him a devotion to God's purposes so great that it takes precedence over the closest family ties. He must follow his calling, even if it brings pain and misunderstanding. While Jesus' unique sonship to God and unique mission are his alone, he will later teach that a requirement to follow him is a commitment to make a commitment to him precedent and more important and more primary than, than over our family ties, earthly family ties. Later in Luke's gospel, Jesus speaks strong words regarding families, touches sort of close to home for a lot of us. In speaking to a crowd in Luke chapter 8, Jesus reveals that those who are his true family are those who hear and practice the word of God. And later in Luke 14, he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. This morning's text, along with these other teachings about family, have at least two implications for us today. The first is that disciples of Jesus must make their commitment to God primary over all other relationships. Now, before I get ahead of myself, let me just say, <laughs> this does not mean that followers of Jesus alienate themselves from their family members, right, who don't believe in God. It doesn't mean that we throw away relationships with people who aren't uh, who do not share our same faith, right? It, those relationships, they remain significant. The, the friends that we dressed up in pajamas with, I don't think that they go to church anywhere, but we still dress up with pajamas uh, with them. But rather, we see here that where the relational commitments 
between earthly families and with our heavenly Father conflict, Christians must honor their commitment to God over and against everything else. This way can express itself are too numerous to count, some more serious than others, but let me offer you a simple illustration. Several years ago, we had a, a student in our youth group, the church that I was serving in at the time, and he maintained a, a pretty sincere commitment of faith. Actually, he drove by our house yesterday and gave me a gift on his way to go see his girlfriend's family, which I was grateful for. But during the Christmas holiday, the demand on time for him and the church and families and churches, it sort of increases, right, for everybody. And every year, this student's family held a pretty meaningful family gathering on Christmas Eve. Their church family was holding a significant gathering then as well, uh, a Christmas Eve service. And being unable to be in two places at the same time, he had a decision to make. Which of these things do I make primary for myself? They chose, he chose, to be at our Christmas Eve service, the church's family gathering for service, and then head over to his family gatherings. And while it's a simple illustration, it gets to the point that commitment to the family of God remains primary, and this pushes against so many social norms in our society. Family, in many ways, seems to trump everything else that happens in the Christian life. This is not how it's supposed to be. But beyond the implication of family commitments required of the individual, there also remains an implication for faith communities here. The reality is that there are people, like the student I mentioned in our story, that don't have earthly families that share their faith. I believe it is the responsibility of those who do the will of God to be stand-in mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters to them. We are to treat and relate to one another as if we are family because this, in the spiritual truth is that we are family. In the church I attended uh, throughout seminary and served in, there was an elderly gentleman, Doc Hardison, he was a veterinarian, and he would often refer to me as his grandson uh, because he felt this sort of kinship with me. He's the oldest youth volunteer I ever had in youth ministry. He was like in his early 80s, so don't tell me you're too old for youth ministry. But I would often refer to him as my grandfather or grandpa, and uh, I sort of did this because he got a kick out of it and made him feel good, but it was also this verbal declaration of a spiritual reality that we were family one of the things that I, I, it's really difficult to get across, I think, sometimes in the life of the church is what it means on a really basic level to be a church is to be a family. I am disinterested in gathering a bunch of strangers in a room on Sunday mornings for an hour to preach sermons and sing songs together. That's great. And I think that that's formative and important for us to do. But that is not the goal of church life. The goal of church life is to create a different kind of community than what we see in the world around us. In a world that is so divided and sort of combative in many ways, the church is to be the place that unites people in a profound way. In a way that makes everybody else who sees the relationships that exist there like, 
why the heck do you hang out with those people? Why did you invite them over for Christmas Eve? You're not related to them. Why, why did you, why were you there for that person in that way? Why is that relationship so important to you? Well, because we are family. Because we are family. And we have to nurture and create the kinds of relationships that reflect to the world that we have deep bonds in this place. This is what the home groups are about. This is what our dinner groups are about, is cultivating spaces for you to give expression to the spiritual reality that we're family in Christ. And that relationship and that commitment to one another matters. Jesus' identity as a family member gives us clarity what it means to be a member of God's family. At the close of this morning's text, we see Jesus returning home with Mary and Joseph. Having set the stage for his adult ministry, Luke won't pick up on Jesus' life for another 18 years, reminding us that things are always best done in God's timing. I love, by the way, just sort of side note, I know my kids are losing it. You're doing a good job, babe. I find it so fascinating that the Son of God comes to earth and he spends really the first 30 years just kind of not being known, anonymous living, being faithful in his vocation as a woodworker in his community of faith. There's a lot of meaning there for those of us who just got to go to work tomorrow, that this is what Jesus does. But perhaps this morning is a time for you to make a decision of faith or to make next steps in your faith by seeking out a, a teacher or a mentor or determining that this year you're going to increase your knowledge and wisdom of God. Maybe you need to finally make your relationship with God the primary commitment in your life. Maybe, maybe we need to make the step this year to actually be a family and to begin to parse out the implications of what that actually means. It's not just like a, a trivial like, oh, we're, we're a church family. Like, no, this is profound, deep commitment. That means despite conflict, we're going to stay together. That, that when there's real need, we're going to meet it. But I encourage you, as we, the final Sunday of this calendar year, to respond to the word of God as he calls and leads you. And may we somehow in our faithfulness and by God's grace, grow in wisdom and knowledge of him. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.